Quick announcement. After RUF tonight, Pop Belly's ice cream on us. So after about 10 minutes, uh, head down to Pot Belly's on Route 1, and uh, we will soothe your ice cream appetite. Um, on RUF, thank you, donors and givers. Um, we are, we're talking about parables this semester, so if this is your first time or if you haven't been here for a while, we're still, we're still doing parables. And, uh, we're really glad that you're here. And, you know, parables are more than just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Um, they're more than just allegories, although they are kind of like allegories. Um, but they are, they are specific stories that Jesus is telling they, to tr- really drive home a specific point. And he always has a specific audience in mind when he's telling these stories. And they're somewhat like a joke. It's kind of like you're going along, you're going along, you're, you're into the joke, you're into the story, and then all of a sudden, boom, the punchline. And uh, in the Old Testament, you remember when Nathan the prophet was talking to David about this little lamb that this rich owner had taken and uh, had slaughtered and uh, used for a meal. And that was the little kind of parable story that he told. And then all of a sudden he turned around and said, David, you are the man. And Jesus does a similar thing with parables. He wants to get our attention. He wants to, to grab us. And they demand a response. And so that's what we're talking about. So tonight... Uh, we're doing Matthew 22, and this is uh, a parable about the wedding feast. There's a couple parables about a wedding feast. Um, but the big point of this parable is that the people you would expect to come to the wedding feast don't want to come. And instead, it's other people. It's the people on the highways and byways. It's the losers that come to the wedding feast. The, the people that you would expect to be there they're not there. But it's the other people. And people have all kinds of excuses. And I want to read a C.S. Lewis quote. It's actually on your paper uh, before I start tonight. This is in his book, The Weight of Glory. And I highly recommend C.S. Lewis. Some of you have probably read him, but a great book is Mere Christianity. If you ever want to read something, another really good one is Screwtape Letters. Um, this is in The Weight of Glory. And he talks about This idea of our desires versus a desire for God. He says this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then he says, we are far too easily pleased. We are the people that are making mud pies in the slum. And all, all along, there is this huge vacation at the sea waiting for us. And that's... He's trying to give us a picture of the glory of God, a picture of the wedding feast to some extent, and how wonderful it is when you have a relationship with Jesus and how it can give you joy and how it can just change your whole life and change your affections and your desires and really give you hope. And so the question is, you know, what, what, is, what is the desire of your heart? 
you know, what What do, do you really want to be about? There's a guy by the name of John Piper. He's a pastor and author. And uh, he said this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And he goes on to say that God is most glorified in our life when we find our greatest satisfaction in Him. In other words, he's talking about the fact that we were made for God. That God has made us in His image and He specifically made us for a relationship with Him. And there's another another writer that said that there's a God-centered vacuum in our hearts that only God can fulfill. Okay, But yet, what we do is we try to put everything else in that vacuum. We try to put entertainment. We try to put relationships, romance, sexuality, just having a good time, partying, whatever. Lots of different things in there. And we find that we become addicted to them. We find that we, they... they they break us. <laughs> we find that they can destroy us. They, we find that we can become addicted to those things and they can really just bring us down. And God is saying that we're made for Him. We're made to worship Him. We're made to find our greatest joy and satisfaction in Him. But it's so hard because our hearts are restless and they're always searching for something else. Augustine, the great church father, said our hearts are restless until they find our rest in God. And so, you know, this, this passage really sums up really the whole Bible. Before I get into it, though, I just wanted to say this thing. This passage is also painting a picture of what the kingdom of God is. And Jesus said when He came on the scene, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And the real question for you and me is like, is that our heart's desire? God's kingdom? God's glory? Or is it our own kingdom, our own glory. And uh, for these people in the parable, that's really what it was about. It was about they, they missed the feast because it was really about them. And they missed this wonderful, beautiful, incredible feast that God had for them. Um, some of you know that this weekend, I ran a half marathon. Uh, the Baltimore Half Marathon. I did. Yes, thank you. And uh, I, I enjoy running. It relieves stress. It's a good time to think. Um, you know, it, it makes me feel young uh, when, when I can do this. Um, and I think that I'm staving off my old age, that sort of thing. And uh, But the problem was last Thursday night, I started getting a really sore throat. And I was thinking, am I coming down with strep throat? I had, I woke up in the morning, I really didn't feel that well. I had like stuffy head cold, got the sore throat going. And I'm thinking, in 24 hours I'm supposed to run this race. How am I going to do this? And so all day I'm thinking, should I really do this? Is this wise to do this? Because if I do this and expend my energy 13.1 miles, um, number one, am I, am I going to have the lung capacity? Because I was kind of having like the, you know, and I have asthma and all that sort of thing. Am I going to just die in Baltimore? Just just <laughs> flat out die? Am I just going to get pneumonia and then be out for like two months? Is this a wise decision? And so I thought about all those things. And then I got up in the morning and I said, there's no way I am not running this marathon. Because I was so excited about it for so long. And the adrenaline just kind of got me up. I took a hot shower. Things started feeling a little bit better. And I went. I put on layers. And... Uh, I went up there and I ran 
and uh, it was very windy. Uh, it was very hilly in Baltimore, and but I finished under two hours, and uh, it was a great time. Um, it was glorious. And when I was finishing, I came right down through Camden Yards, okay, Utah Street right there, number five, Brooks Robinson's number. Gave it a little kiss on the way, way down. People are cheering. It's awesome. And uh, I finished 156.17. Okay. So, uh, but that's a pithy, simplistic illustration just to say that I wasn't going to make any excuses. It was going to take more than, uh, you know, a scratchy throat and a head cold to stop me. And, uh, but when it comes to God's kingdom and His feast, the wedding feast that He's putting out there for us, are you making excuses? Are you really in that race or not? And so read with me Matthew 22, uh, 1-14. Hear God's Word. And again Jesus spoke to them in, the, in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And his servants, to call those who were invited to the wedding feast... Oh, excuse me, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, Bind him, hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called... But few are chosen. This ends the reading of God's Word. Now, to understand this parable, I need to briefly explain to you the entire Old Testament. Okay? Because really what this parable is about is really the entire Old Testament in a nutshell, to some extent. And uh, that's the big picture. God is this King. Okay? And He has created this kingdom that we live in, this universe, this world, all the people in this world. And He specifically called Abraham and his family, the Jewish people, to be His precious chosen people um, to live for Him and to believe in Him and to believe the promises. But the problem that we find out way back in Genesis 3 and then all through the Old Testament is the people continually reject Him as the King. And they continue to say, you know what, I think we can figure out life by ourselves. We don't really need Your Word. We don't need Your promises. We don't need Your Messiah. We can do it ourselves. 
And so they reject God. They reject the prophets that come. Sometimes they beat the prophets. Sometimes they stoned them. Sometimes they killed them. Um, all through the Old Testament, this is what we see. And then, But still there would be a remnant people that would believe. But many people would reject. And they would reject God's grace time and time again. They would see God work. And they would see God bring them out of Egypt through Moses. And do all kinds of miracles and lead them through the wilderness and into the promised land. And once they got into the promised land, they basically got fat and happy and they forgot about God. And they would worship other gods, the, the Baal gods, the Canaanite gods, any god that was around. They would worship that god and they would forsake the God of the Bible. They would forsake the king who was preparing this wedding feast for them. And so what we see is that ultimately God brought about judgment on His people. He brought about he expelled them from the promised land. He brought in other nations, Assyria, Babylon, to take them out. Okay, and in this passage, it talks about God sending in uh, people and burning the city and destroying um, those who rejected Him. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. God pours out His wrath on His people to try to discipline them, try to get their attention, and uh, so that they would they would love Him and serve Him. Um, but ultimately, uh, they rejected Him. And only a few came. All were called to follow Him, but only a few uh, were chosen. And so, this is the picture that the Lord Jesus is giving us. He's saying to you and to me, don't be like that. <laughs> don't be like these religious folks who thought they understood and yet failed the most important thing, and that is fellowship with God, fellowship with their King, fellowship at the feast with the Son. And so that's what He's calling us to. And so we're going to look uh, tonight why people say no to the party. Okay, Don't be a party pooper okay, when it comes to God's kingdom. And there's lots of excuses in this passage. So we're going to look at these three. Number one, too many choices. Good, but not the best. Or good, but not the ultimate. Secondly, stubborn hearts. Idols in the heart. And the third uh, way that we reject is we have false righteousness. Okay, And so the first thing, the first excuse here is better options, taking the good but not the best. And we see that as uh, the initial invitation goes out from the king to his servants. And the servants, we might say, those are the prophets that go out and proclaim the good news to Israel, the good news to us. And so in verse 3, it says again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm and another to his business. Farms and businesses. Okay. Good things. All right. Things that are honorable. Jobs. Okay. Uh, careers. Important things. Um, but... In the, in the picture of this story, not the best choice when it comes to the worship of the Son. Okay? And to some extent, they lost their priorities. Um, God created this kingdom, and He created us for work, and that's a good thing. Um, but the kingdom of God, and when a person is changed by the kingdom of God, it means that we see everything we do in light of God's big story. 
And so it can't just be our career as a farmer tilling the ground and with the cattle and everything apart from the fact that God has created us and God has given us uh, His His uh, His grace and He has called us to worship His Son. It has to be all involved. It can't just be, I'm just going to go do my job and I could care less about God. I could care less about His worship. I don't have anything to do with Him. I'm just going to do my career and find my satisfaction there. That's what people do in our culture. Okay, it's... In in our circles, in religious circles, theological circles, they call it the secular sacred split. It's like we put this side of our life, the business, the career, the farm, over here, and God does not touch it. But in the kingdom of God, all of it is included. And so we have to think about our work. We have to think about our schooling in terms of how does God uh, fit into this picture of our life. But in the parable here, they go off to their farm, they go off to their business, and they had no ability to see the ultimate things. The fact that God had created them and God had called them to worship Him. And God had called them to bow down to His Son and come to that wedding feast. Because that was an ultimate thing. They had no ability to do that. They were stuck in their small things. Good things, but not ultimate things. The idol was their job. So, does this mean, just to clarify, does this mean that, okay, if you become a Christian or if you're in God's kingdom, then you don't care about your job or you don't care about school? No. Okay? We're called to glorify God in all of our lives. Jobs are important. They're given by God to us. But we have to, we have to look at them in the perspective of being one of God's children in that job and, and seeking to glorify Him in that job and to redeem those areas of creation. We can't think of our work apart from the fact that we're God's children and He's called us to certain things. And so we have to always think about our story within God's story. Okay, we got to think about our little kingdom, not by itself, but like in God's big kingdom. Okay, Submitted to His kingdom. All right? And so we do our work as Christians according to kingdom principles. Um, and so that means a lot of different things. So a doctor, maybe there's a doctor who is performing abortions. And he becomes a Christian. You can't keep doing abortions. You can't keep killing people. Okay? Everything changes. Maybe it's... Uh, a business person is just trying to rip people off, but then he becomes a Christian. You can't do that anymore. You have to look at those people in the eye and be honest with them. If you know that they're in debt, you don't try to rip them off. Maybe you don't even sell that product or that car or that vehicle to them because they can't afford it. You try to sell them something they can afford. And so we look at everything we do and work differently. Um, you're a student. Maybe you've had struggles with cheating. If you're a believer in His kingdom, that means you have to you have to repent of that, and you have to be uh, a person of integrity and be honest. Uh, everything you do within God's kingdom, looking at your story within God's story, and so we need uh, we need Christians, farmers, Christian businessmen, we need Christian doctors, teachers, lawyers, um, maintenance people, plumbers, everybody. We need people in all those fields to glorify God and to look to God's kingdom in the midst of that. And so, the question is, have you just separated everything 
And are you just pursuing that apart from Jesus and apart from what He's called you to? And so have you neglected Jesus and His call for you? Are you just too busy for worship on Sunday? Are you too busy for church? Are you too busy... You know, obviously you probably can't come to every RUF thing we do. If you do, you're probably not studying. Okay? But are you committed to like certain things in RUF and, and really committed to, um, you know, getting to know people in a small group and, and trying to serve the Lord through that or whatever ministry that you're involved in? Um, that's important. That's part of what it means to be a Christian student and to have balance in your life. Um, and so, you know, it might mean that you think about a Christian, uh, full-time Christian service. Maybe, maybe it would be to be in the, go into the ministry, or it might mean you go and be a missionary here locally or somewhere uh, around the world. But it means that you think about your life in, in perspective of God's kingdom. You don't separate out. You don't just pursue your things without Jesus. Okay. Second thing is this. Uh, we fail to enter the party... When our hearts are just flat out stubborn. Okay, and that's really the, the second group of people. You have the people that go to the farm and the business, and then there's another group, uh, that really was hostile to God. And they really allowed their pride and their arrogance to rule their life. And so, as you look at this passage, you see, um, this other group, verse 5, but they, paid no attention, went off, one to his farm, one to his business, and then this next group, while the rest, verse 6, seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And then it says, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And so, they were so hostile to God's grace. And all God is doing here is providing what? <laughs> this huge banquet. This huge party. This huge feast. All this free grace... But somehow, there's something wrong in their hearts. They just can't take it. They, they have no need for God, this king, or his son, or this wedding feast, this party. Okay, these are the epitome of the party poopers right here. Okay, they kill the servants who come with the news to come to the party. Okay, now, this was very, very strong words. Because Jesus is talking to... The religious leaders. He's talking to the Pharisees, the scribes. Okay, that's the audience. The religious people. The people who knew the Old Testament. They were all around the church all the time. Okay, they knew their Bible backwards and forwards. But something had gone wrong with these people who were right in the church. They got really, really hard hearts. <laughs> really, really stubborn hearts. And... This passage really points out how easy it is to, to get hard-hearted and how easy it is to become very arrogant, how easy it is, even within the church, within religious circles, to become, hey, I'm a know-it-all, i got all the answers, and I don't really need Jesus. Okay? That's what was going on. They missed Jesus. The main point of the, the Old Testament was that a Messiah was going to come he was promised all the way back from Genesis 3, all the way on. They knew it. They knew that there was a Messiah to come. He shows up. He does miracles, amazing miracles. Thousands of people follow Him around in the Gospels. He does more miracles. He goes to the cross. He dies. He rises again. I mean, He proved Himself time and time again. These people rejected Him time and time again. 
even the religious. And I, re- I remember once as a youth minister, I used to be a youth minister to junior high kids. Okay, think about that for a little while. Um, and uh, I remember one of my junior high kids. He was an unchurched junior high kid. He 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 came with. They used to list, listen to the Insane Clown Posse, and uh, and uh, I remember him asking me. He said, "Like, well, who killed Jesus?" I mean, it was like a dead honest question. Like, who killed him? And you know, the academic answer would be, well, historically, you know, it was the religious leaders, the Jewish uh, religious leaders, kind of set him up, and uh, they liked, you know, their power in the community, the status quo, and uh, Jesus was a threat to them, and he was doing these miracles, huge crowds were following him, and so they were able to work this system, you know, to to get Jesus to the cross, and then. And then also, you know, of course, it was Pilate and the Romans. You know, they were the they, they were the actual ones that that you know nailed him to the cross. It was them. But you know what? You know what the real answer is? Who killed Jesus? I did, and you did. Our sin is what nailed him to the cross. Our sin is what put him there. That it's not just, you can't just blame, you know, the Jewish people back then. Because he came, because of our sin, he came with the purpose to die for sinners like you and like me. That was his main goal. That's what he did. But we were the ones, if we had been there, we would have said, like that one song we sing, you know, like, you know, nail him to the cross. Like, we don't want him. He disturbs our lives too much. He brings in things we don't want to hear. That's what he was doing. And they didn't like it. And we don't like it because it confronts us with our arrogant hearts and our pride. And we would just rather have that. That's how sinful our hearts are. One of the things I I do like about Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, you might know this, but... I mean, I know Mel Gibson's kind of controversial lately, saying a lot of crazy stuff, and I don't even know. But one of the things about that that movie that I really like is he has a cameo appearance in that film. I don't know if you know that. But when they nail Jesus to the cross, it's his hands. It's Mel Gibson's hands uh, nailing the spikes. And he's making a statement there that <laughs> we I nailed him to the cross. My sin put him there. That's you and me. We put him there. We killed Jesus. And so, um, do you understand that's how hard your heart is? That you would just like life by yourself, independent, without the worry of God. I mean, that's what sin is. We don't need God. We can figure it out by ourselves. We can save ourselves through our idols. And we can have salvation by ourselves through different things. We don't need Jesus. That's what our hearts are saying. And so we outright reject God. And so, is that you? Is that you tonight? If that's you tonight, guess what? There's hope. <laughs> Jesus likes to break hearts softly. <laughs> and he likes, to, he likes to change our hearts. And that's what He's in the business. That's what the Holy Spirit does. If you feel like you have a hard heart, just say, Jesus, break my heart. You know, may Your mercy... Get in touch with me. And 
And he will, he will hear the cry of the brokenhearted. That's what he does. And he loves to break the pride, our own pride. And he loves when we're weak, when we're wounded, when we're sick and sore. And that's when he can feast with you. And so that's two things. The third is this interesting section here at the end with the guy who's not wearing the wedding clothes. And another excuse we have is just our own false righteousness. Okay? And uh, this is like verses 11 to 13. And so the king comes in. He saw there a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding garments? And he was speechless. And uh, I kept thinking about that couple that went to the president's like dinner party or something. Somehow they got in. Now they were dressed up and everything. Now the woman's on like Housewives of D.C. Do you guys realize that? She's, but she's cashed in on whatever happened. They canceled it? Okay. Um, thank you for that update. Uh, but here's this guy. He thinks, hey, he came. It's like, hey, I'm at the party. You know, I'm here at the wedding feast. It's great. And he's getting ready to have a big surprise because uh, the king comes in and sees that he is not wearing the right attire. Okay? I don't know if you've been to one of these kind of weddings where, or, you know, some sort of you know, place where you have to have a jacket or, you know, a dress or a formal kind of thing. And um, I don't I don't really go to those kind of places. They don't like people like me to go to those places. But there are places out there, okay, where you do have to dress correctly, okay? You can't show up in jorts, okay? Do you guys know what jorts are? Jean shorts? Um, that wouldn't look good, okay? If you went to the wedding and everybody's in tuxes and you got jorts on, okay? Um, and so this guy apparently is there with jorts on. And uh, the king comes out and he sees him. And this is improper wedding clothes. And, uh, and so all through the Scriptures, there's some different passages they kind of reflect this idea of how God clothes His people. And uh, back in Genesis 3, after the first sin, what did God do after that sin? They were naked, they were ashamed, and God made cloths. He killed an animal. He, it's really the first picture of a sacrifice and a covering for their sin. Okay, And He covers them in cloth or, or in uh, the skin of the animal. Okay, And then all through the Old Testament, there's different pictures where Jesus clothes His people. Uh, and in Ezekiel, there's a great picture of how God looks at His bride, the people of Israel, like a wife. And He talks about how He clothes her in this incredible, um, costly ornaments and jewelry uh, to be a perfect wife for Him. And... That's a picture we have uh, throughout the Scriptures. And so here we have this, this idea. What is, so what is this idea of being clothed? Well, here's, here's the big thing. The Gospel is all about being clothed in somebody else's righteousness. Okay, It's not about being showing up at the party at the wedding feast of the Lamb in your own righteousness, because when God looks at our own righteousness, what, he's, what does He see? Dirty rags. He sees jorts with oil you know, on them. He, he doesn't see 
righteousness. He sees our own sin. And so, we have to have somebody else's righteousness, and that's what the Lord Jesus came to do. That when you believe in the Gospel, when you believe in the, in the Son and go to the feast, what you're saying is, I recognize that my clothes are not acceptable for this feast. My clothes are my sin. My clothes are my unrighteousness. I have no ability to save myself. I need yours. I need your wedding clothes, Jesus. And so, that's what the Gospel gives us. When we believe on Jesus, He gives us all of His perfect robes of righteousness that we wear. And so, you want to come to the wedding feast? You want to party with Jesus? You want to have the best wine and the choicest meat that Isaiah talks about, the wedding feast of lamb, of the Lamb? You can't come in your own clothes. You have to come in somebody else's. You have to get your wedding clothes on and they're not yours. And you can't buy them at Abercrombie & Fitch. They are only through the Lord Jesus and His perfect righteousness. And that's what He gives to us. And so in Romans 1.18 it says, But now righteousness from God is revealed apart from the law from first to last. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's talking about faith in Jesus. And so coming to Jesus, coming to that party means you trust in Jesus, not yourself. That's it. It's free. Free grace. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is believe it. All you have to do is drop your pride. All you have to do is say no to your stubborn heart and cry out to God, give me that free grace. And it's like the Masters. I always think about the Masters when I think about clothed in the green jacket. Um, but uh, I'm not much of a golfer, but I love to watch the Masters. And, you know, this is Augusta, Georgia, for those of you who don't know. And at the end of that golf tournament on Sunday afternoon, whoever comes in first, they win. They go to the Butler cabin and the... The guy who won last year places on them the green master's jacket. Okay, And as I think about this in terms of the gospel, I think about if Chris Garriott ever got to play in a master's, it would be horrible. It would be like military golf, left, right, left, right, slice, hook, you know, in the pond, in the trees, at Amen Corner, everywhere. But the gospel says this. That's, my, that's what I've done. I've messed up totally everywhere. Okay, My golf score is, you know, 200. Verses 72, okay? But <laughs> the Gospel says that when I get to the clubhouse, Jesus hands in His card, and it's, you know, negative 10, you know, I'm, I'm, I won. And He gives me His green jacket. Okay, Jack Nicholas gives me His green jacket. Alright, that's what I get. That's the Gospel. Okay, let me pray. Lord, thank You for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Thank You that You call people to come and You dress them in Your righteousness. Lord, if we got stubborn hearts, Lord, I pray that You'd break them. And I pray that You'd break mine. And that we would trust in Jesus and just be satisfied in Him. Um, Lord, would You be kind to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, we're going to stand and sing a last song. And then, in, and then after it's over, we'll have announcements. Okay. Thank <laughs> you.